love ELO? Of course you do. What kind of dim-witted jughead doesn't? Then listen to Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast. Every week, I, Eric Paul Johnson, and my co-host, Eric Winsenson, take a song by the Electric Light Orchestra, give the song facts, the history, discuss, tear apart, dig deep into the song itself, give our opinions, chart facts about the singles, and we even consult with the future of humanity on their opinion of the Electric Light Orchestra. So if you don't want to be a dim-witted jughead, then listen to Face the Music, an Electric Light Orchestra song-by-song podcast. Episodes post every Saturday at midnight Eastern Time and can be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Mixcloud, TuneIn, and iHeart. That was stupid as a butthead. Hello and welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Quibell, known to my friends as Marv. And this time I'm speaking with Kevin Brown from the show The Tom Petty Project. I was going to do a Tom Petty impression there, but I tried it earlier and I sounded like Bob Dylan. How are you doing, Kev? Thanks for being here. I'm doing very, very well, Martin. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's going to be a blast. That's okay. Um, oh, before we start, um, I'll, I'll just say... Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully eventually you getting together with those other people and doing the uh, the Traveling Wilburys podcast. Yeah, that'd be now that would be a huge and I'd like I literally have that in my calendar now to loop back to once I get there and that'll be it'll be a little while but um because again, you know, you, you have these ideas. I'm going to do a song by song podcast, and you think, oh, well, that's an original idea. And then you start looking around, and say, oh no, like loads of people have done this for different bands. And so having people there that have done Jeff Lynne and and Harrison and you know and and um, oh good lord, Dylan and those kinds of things, that'd be such a, a great sort of melting pot to bring those people together and start <clears throat> and start sharing your ideas. So I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you for uh, thank you for suggesting that. It's a great idea. Well, I've spoken with Ben from uh, the yeah. Bob Dylan album by album podcast because uh, Ben is a fantastic I mean he, he's a professional and uh, I remember when I spoke to Ben it was it was really I was really nervous because Ben was among one of my first in fact I think it was either my first or second day of recording ever and I thought oh, oh dear wow. I'm, 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 talk- I'm talking to a professional uh, DJ presenter here who works for um, he works for Absolute Radio in the UK, and I mean he's spoken to these people like you know the the Noel Gallagher's, and uh, he put a picture up the other day of himself with Taylor Hawkins, and you oh, see a yeah. thing, you know, for that to be one of your first interviewees, and then I think the same night I talked to Sean O'Connell, who own who is uh, the main ed- chief editor for um, an online entertainment uh, company. Uh, called yeah. Cinema Blend, and he, and I was thinking, oh, God, he's interviewed, you know, um, Quentin Tarantino. They've had on their show three times, and they spoke, <laughs> they've spoken with Clint Eastwood, Robert De Niro, <laughs> and all these people, and I'm thinking, you know, Marv, you, you've thrown yourself in at the deep end talking to these people, really. Yeah. I think that's super cool, though. I mean, I, I had a, a somewhat, not quite the same as that, obviously, but somewhat similar experience. And I found that, and I think maybe, I don't know whether you would agree with this, that you sort of have these, you know, like bucket list or aspirational guests. So you think, well, I'll ask, but they probably, they'll say no. 
but a lot of people, there's people so generous with their time. And if, if it's something that you're, you want to talk to them about that they're interested in, a lot of people just say yes, because, you know, they want to talk. And then the other thing that I found um, was this last interview with Paul Zolo, who's also a, you know, he's, yep. he's a journalist and he's interviewed, I mean, everybody, you know, Springsteen, John Prine, Tom Petty, a million times for his book and whatnot. And what I found was that when you're speaking to someone who, and I did this with Dallas Helicker on season one too, if you're speaking to someone who does a podcast or is yep. used to interviewing people, they're much easier to interview because they understand how to be interviewed. They know where to leave gaps. They know when to, oh, well, that guy's going to talk a little bit now. I need to just be quiet and not talk over top. So I found that dynamic sort of changes a little bit and it's really interesting. When Whereas if you get someone who's never been interviewed, you have to manage that a little bit more, you know, and you have to sort of be a little bit more patient with sort of getting your flow to match theirs rather than sort of getting that symbiosis right off the top. Yeah. Some people say that, you know, they're surprised about what I do, you know, with a podcast. And then I, I sort of mentioned to them that in a way it's a sort of a cheat essentially, because I'm speaking with people who actually do do podcasts. So really half of my job is done because I'm talking to people who know what they're doing. So essentially I just, Real, I just sort of like lead them in and let them just flow from and respond, and they know what the, what they're doing, and you know what ma- they know what makes a good podcast anyway because they do that. Some of them as a ho- most of them as a hobby, but you know they do it all the time, so they're used to it, like yourself now. Yeah, for sure, and you just get that sort of. You tend to get fewer verbal ticks. And you tend to get people being a little bit more prepared, usually I would imagine, right? Because obviously you think, okay, well, I'm going on someone else's podcast. I don't want to waste their time because there's nothing worse than getting to hour three and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to wrap this up pretty soon, you know? So. You know, you say that. And then I was on <laughs> um, Trimming the Musical Fat, uh, which they they take an album and they cut, they cut like, so they'll pick a double album and they'll say, right, make this into a better single album. And uh, we did um, Diamonds and Pearls by Prince. Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, <laughs> and then they had a huge editing job to do because we spoke for three hours, <laughs> and they had to it's edit that right? down. It's difficult, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> I th- I, yeah, but we couldn't <laughs> stop talking, and and then because uh, they invited me to do another one soon, and I said, well, so long as you can fit in the three hours or the four hours that we need. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a Prince fan as well then? yes yeah very much yeah very well rounded um, what, what do you think of Prince's um, my guitar while my guitar gently weeps with, with Tom at the side of him I mean it's one of the all time great live musical performances you know I mean there's no there's no two ways about that I, mean, I think for several reasons one he plays one of the best solos I've ever heard off the cuff, you know, yeah. that's not rehearsed. Um, and then the the thing that I love most about it is watching the other musicians reacting because live music is not just about sort of the interaction between the musician and the crowd. It's definitely about the interaction on stage as well. And that's where you, that you can't fake that. You know, if a band's dialing it in, they're calling it in. When you see them live, you know that and the audience picks up on it. So to see Danny Harrison just laughing you know just pure joy on his face and you can see tom petty kind of smiling looking over and saying this is just so cool it's just i just think it's just a wonderful wonderful performance and a great tribute to one of my favorite musicians and then of course the ending when he throws the guitar up and who knows where it lands that's just pure theater and it's pure prince i think right yeah yeah yep i I think i think that um i mean his guitar solo is um 
very for saying it was made up on the spot it's an interesting guitar solo because it's in it's in it's got it's got a shape to it so he goes from one style of playing and then he he does a very so he's like very melodic to start with and then he goes into like um a a, a real burnout on the guitar he just goes for it and then yep. it goes back to being melodic. So it's a very structured, I mean, it's very structured, even though it's made yep. up on the spot. And it's 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 the sign of a really good lead guitarist as well, because I know, you know, we'll, we'll go into, you know, we'll transition this and I'll, I'll say that it's a bit like you say with, uh, with Mike Campbell, with his guitar solos on Heartbreakers songs, where Mike will play exactly what is right and... A lot of the time with their recordings, it's interesting because he's it's like he's responding to what's going on around him and he plays perfectly according to that. And the musicians pull off each other because, I mean, a lot of the times they do actually record as a band together, much like Bruce Springsteen does with the, with the E Street Band. So they are playing off each other. And both of us, me and yourself, we've both been in bands in the past as musicians and like you said, that feeling of being together in the same room and then bouncing off each other while you're playing creates something really special when it works. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, sort of to, to finish up with the, with the Prince thing, I think you're dead right. I mean, I, I, what I suspect would have happened was that he mapped out sort of the shape of what he was going to play, so that exact thing. So I'm going to play a sort of a, a very bluesy first eight or 16, then I'm going to shred a little bit and then I'm going to sort of finish off with this kind of big BB King bends and all these types of things. So I think he would have had that in mind and from there just let his mind wander. Because, I mean, the guy was, you know, people sort of who don't necessarily know music, I think sometimes don't realize that he really was a virtuoso guitar player. One of the best, one of the best guitar players of all time, easily. You know, in any, in pretty much in any genre, he could play R&B, he could play jazz, he could play rock, he could do anything, that guy. So I think people that gets lost sometimes because Prince is just such is such a larger than life figure. But with Mike Campbell, yeah, I mean, I was listening to so for the for the last episode, don't do me like that. There's a great um, uh, YouTube episode of produce like uh, produce like a pro, it's called, um, and it's a guy who sits down with Shelly Yakis, the engineer from Damn the Torpedoes. So they get the isolated tracks. So that song was recorded essentially live off the floor with a few overdubs, but because you can hear, you know, when they, when they listen to um, uh, Ron Blair's bass part, you can hear bleed from the guitar. You can hear the guitar very, very quietly in the background. And um, so that sort of that feeling of that's how they used to record a lot of their songs, or at least the first sort of the first draft of it or the, the, the cut of it is live off the floor because that, that exact thing, they want to play off each other. They're a live band, right? I mean, yeah. th- that's, that's what they did. They were a live band. And so when they get in the studio, that was the thing that was most natural for them. And I think that's some of where on Damn the Torpedoes, Stan Lynch's frustration came in with, you know, he's having to tune the drums 50 times and they're trying 20 different snares to get the right sound. And it's like, well, let, let me just play. But studios are a different animal from live and you do have to have that sort of, that attention to detail to make sure that the record comes out the other end sounding absolutely amazing, right? Damn the Torpedoes is one of the best sounding albums ever made. Certainly in the, in the 70s, it sort of, changed the way that rock and roll albums were recorded with those huge, huge drums um, and sort of those really sort of clear um, separated guitar tones. So again, I think that that sort of get that live feel and make sure you capture the band in its essence, but have that sort of 
that technical engineering um, expertise to make sure that it's captured properly so that the album sounds as good as it possibly can. Yep, and I think that's why uh, of the later period of Tom, I mean, we're going quite far far on here, but yeah. from his later period, that's why I'm I'm a fan of the uh, the Echo album because that's that's very much recorded in that style and you can hear that that incredible sense that they are in the same room together on that album. I, I know that when I listen to that album, I can hear a band who are there in the same room re- reacting to each other. It's just something that as a musician, I can hear it there. You know when, when a band's recording an album live in the studio and I love that album to bits. I, th- I think that's an incredible album. Yeah, it's superb, and it was it, it's that evolution, right? So you sort of that early period. I was I was break Tom's music into three periods. Sort of the early period, which I think of up to, um, well, sort of well everything up to Jeff Lynne, essentially, really, and then Southern accents. Yeah doesn't quite fit because it's a bit more produced so i'd say i'd put that into the middle period then you've got that middle period which to me is everything up to say echo i think you know rick rubin's involvement and then after that you get that sort of late period where you know the shackles really came off and they were really only recording for themselves now they they didn't they weren't worrying about what the record company wanted they weren't worrying about what was current at all they said well now we're just going to make this music i think the echo obviously being the last of those three albums that they made with rick rubin beautifully beautifully produced but i think ruben's skill was that he was able to extract that live sort of that's how the band sounds when you hear them play so let's try and capture that as much as we can because they've gone away from that with jeff lynn right you know you think about um, uh, full moon fever a lot of those drum tracks were recorded an individual drum at a time just to make sure they could get exactly the right sound they wanted and they were sort of you know um, i think on won't back down it's a it's an automated it's a click track hi-hat that's not a real hi-hat and some of the i think yeah. the the kick drum sample so jeff lynn does things slightly differently so they went through that phase and learned a lot from it obviously but then coming out the other end of course then you get wildflower she's the one echo and then out through you know mojo and the rest so so i totally agree with you yeah yeah i mean uh, i mean Je- jeff's production on the on full moon fever and then on into the great wide open you've got a lot of use of triggering on the drums yep. as well. You, you, and you can hear that where you've got, where the drummer will be playing the actual drum, but they've got something attached to it. So what happens is that that triggers a sample in the recording. So you're not actually hearing the real drum and you, you know, and so when they got to the, that period that you're on about, what they were on about with the echo and the, the albums leading up to that, I think it was good because Rick Rubin naturally, he when he records a rock band. I mean, I saw it when he worked with the Chili Peppers with because the, there's a video you can get of the making of um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. There's a video about that where you can see them doing it, and he forces them to actually be in the same room together to record because he he likes to have that sense of that. Because I, I think he's got this thing where if you're a band and you're a rock band, then you're a band and you're there. Yeah, with each other, and so I, I, I'm a big, I'm a big, huge fan of of Rick Rubin's production. I think he has an incredible sound. Yeah, me too. And you think about it, when he came in to do Wildflowers with with the Heartbreak or with well Tom Petty, and it was really the Heartbreakers, you know. Let's be honest. Um, he was only 31, so you get this guy who's come from this yeah. sort of hip hop background, and that was one of the early albums that he did. So to sort of take that chance, but I think. You know, as a musician, you can spend a session or a day or something with a producer and get a sense of, well, do they actually understand what I'm trying to do here? 
Yeah. Do, do they have the same sensibilities and the same sort of vision for where this this set of songs should go? Um, and what a what a relationship those 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 guys had, you know. Absolutely. Hi, this is Katie of Bad Council. With some good counsel, you should keep listening to Marv at Pods Like Us. <laughs> so, what's your own history as a musician? Then, when did you start playing the drums? I mean, is it just the drums, or do you play other instruments as well? So, I'm a, I'm just a, I'm a purely hobbyist, and you, you mentioned earlier that, that we've both played in bands. Well, I've played in one band, and I did one gig for it was three songs in my local pub for my friend had written a song about beer because I'm a huge craft beer guy. Um, I'd written a song about beer, or two songs actually, and he wanted to perform them um, at the brewery that I work with um, because we did a collaboration beer and song release and we donated all the proceeds to our local library. Okay. So it's sort of a fundraising event. So Chris had asked me, he said, I've got this song. It doesn't fit with the band that I play with. Um, would you be interested in, in playing drums? And I was like, well, hell yeah, absolutely. So that was my only experience with actually sort of playing live and 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 that um but in terms of drums i got into drums eight years ago i think on my 40th birthday okay so about sort of i'd say 14 or 15 years ago i was exposed to the video game rock band yeah <laughs> so doesn't sound like a, a great starting point but i sort of that was when i realized that actually i can sing like i can i can hold i mean i always i always sang in the shower and whatnot in the van but i realized that i could actually sing in front of people after a few beers, of course, and I wasn't as bad as most of the rest of them. So I thought, well, actually, that sounds okay. And then when I started sitting down and playing the drums, it's like, okay, I've got the coordination. I can actually make my feet and my hands move in slightly different times here. So then, you know, after two or three years, I thought, well, maybe I'll, I'll get a drum kit. And I asked for a drum kit for Christmas, and my wife gave me some money towards it. So I bought the drums, and yeah, I haven't looked back since. And my uncle's actually a, a phenomenal drummer and a drum, quite a prominent drum collector. Um, so he sort of gave me some pointers about, well, okay, don't don't try and do this right off the bat. Spend quite a few weeks just getting your hands used to playing paradiddles and playing all these different sort of rhythms because that will give you a good sort of base to, to work up from. So that's really my sort of my intro into drums. Um, I also play, well, I play octave bass piano. So I play keyboards, drums, yep. uh, and I sing. And I have guitars, but I would never deign to call myself a guitarist. I can play G on a good day. E on a slightly better day, and then everything else is a bit of a mystery to me at the moment. So, (laughs) So where does your history with podcasts come from? I mean, have you listened to podcasts for a long time yourself? No, this is, yeah. So I've got a a good friend of mine who um, I sort of know through youth soccer. She'd been bugging me for years and years about, okay, you should listen to this podcast. I'm like, I don't want to listen to podcasts. There's people talking. I want to watch YouTube videos. I want to watch a show. So. But then I started getting back into exercise in 2019. I was not happy with my weight. My, I was having major back problems. I thought, I need to get out. I need to start getting mobile again because I was always very active when I was young. So what do you do when you're walk, out walking or out running? You plug in and typically I would listen to music. And I thought, well, you know what? I'll, I'll, maybe I'll give a podcast a go. And I'm a big fan of um, Countdown and Susie Dent. So I follow her on Twitter and her and Giles Brandreth, who I also adore, makes me laugh. Even though I'm a Northerner, I can, and he was a Conservative MP. I'm, you know. So there's something around the Purple podcast. I'm a huge fan of words and language. So I got I jumped on board. Basically, I remember Susie Dent announcing that they were doing this. And I listened to the first episode on the day it was released. And they're only, I think they're only half an hour. And I've never missed a release day of that podcast. That's been the one podcast I always listen to the day it's released. So that was my sort of my introductions. That would have been 2019, I think. And from there, it was sort of 
the Adam Buxton podcast, um, WTF with Mark Merrin. And those are the ones that really sort of got me into, okay, you can have these really long form, big interviews with people where they can actually dig in in quite some depth into their background and into a, a specific t- topic. So that really hooked me because I do quite like long form things. Um, so yeah, that was my sort of introduction to podcasts. So fairly recent. Yeah. Wow. What, what's your favourite bit of something rhymes with purple? I mean, I, I'm a bit naughty, but I quite like the history of when they when they pick a naughty word. Yeah, and yeah. where they came from. I, yeah. Well, I mean, just again, I'm a language nerd, so I, I love just learning about the etymology of words, and it's, it always comes back to either Greek or Germanic or something else, right? And, and that's the thing of I love that when people get upset when english people get upset about well that's it's not the way you should say that word it's not the way that word's spelled and that's the way the americans spell it well actually you know if you go back far enough none of these words are anglo-saxon most of them are either french or german or latin or so anyways so i love that but i love i love Susie's trio i like her trio of words i always try like trying to remember those and I, I really like giles's poetry too because that's exposed me to something that i never listened to or read before either i thought that poetry was sort of a bit dense and a bit you had to be somewhat academic to really sort of understand it, which is a bit silly, really, you know, because music really, music lyrics are often... It's poetry. Like Dylan, especially, right? Dylan writes poetry and then puts it to music, really. So I don't know why I had that sort of mental gap. Maybe it's a a northern working class thing where poetry is, you know, for that mob and it's not for us. So I I like those two parts. But yeah, I I, I really just, I like the entire podcast, really. I think it's just a great format and two great hosts, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I I think they they do a great job of... um they've got a great um, a re- uh, structure to how they do it as well because the show will always start one way and it will go a certain way. I've not listened to it for a while, actually. I, I need to yeah. get back to it at some point. But obviously, I have to listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I find myself getting <laughs> further back on shows that I used to follow. And yep. but So um, so what then made you decide to, uh, to, to you know, then actually think, do you know what? I can do this myself. I mean, what was it? Were you looking for like a, po- a Tom Petty pro- podcast to listen to yourself? Couldn't find one and thought, I'll tell you what, I'll have a go at this. Or, I mean, I mean, how did it, how did it come about? Okay. So I, I really enjoy, I don't know, performing for want of a better word. Like I'm, I'm not, yeah. I used to be a very shy kid. I was very introverted. I wouldn't speak in front of anyone for anything. That kind of got beaten out of me in the, in the military. <laughs> and then through work, I've had to, I, I present a lot to different groups. So I enjoy speaking and I enjoy writing. Um, yeah. And so the first, I actually, my second podcast that I've done, the first podcast I did um, was with my friend Randy, who does my music. And that was in, that was right after the start of the pandemic. So I think March 2020, we did our first episode, or April maybe, um, called Holy F. It's a music podcast. And that was a, a podcast that, it was about local musicians to the Prairie Provinces in Canada. So we'd interview, you know, whoever we could get onto the podcast. And we'd interviewed a couple of good names, like, again, Sheldon Dingwall, the the bass luthier, yep. the guitar maker, and Jay Semko, who's a pretty like a big national treasure kind of uh, musician here. And so we did that for a season, um, but just schedules changed, and Randy's really, really busy with because he he's a sound engineer and a producer, and so we couldn't sort of definitely get time to do season two, but we're hoping to get back to that. Yeah. But then with the Tom Petty, pro- so when that sort of fizzled out a little bit, I thought, well, I really enjoyed that process of making the podcast because there's there's the creative element of writing the episodes or sort of coming up with doing the research, which I enjoy doing the research, do the research, get a set of questions for someone, um, and then actually have an interaction with someone because I like, you know, I enjoy talking to people about music. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, so I thought, okay, well, is there some way that I can do this outside of 
Randy's schedule so that I can just have something to do on my own. And so I thought I was sitting early May last year, sitting around having a drink, watching TV or a movie or something with my wife. And I thought, you know what? I bet no one's ever done a Tom Petty podcast. I bet, I bet no one's ever done like a song by song analysis. Or so maybe I'll do that. And maybe I'll do, maybe it'll be a blog or maybe it'll be a yep. podcast or maybe it'll be some, some kind of hybrid of the, of the two. But so I posted it on my Facebook on May 20th of last year, this idea and got a little bit of feedback from friends. But it's, oh yeah, you should do that. Kev, you should definitely, I'd listen to that. And you think, ah, no, you wouldn't, you're not into, you're not into Tom Petty the same <laughs> way I am. But, but the idea just stuck, you know, that I, when those ideas and they, the idea didn't go away the next day and it didn't go away the next day. So I thought, well, Okay, so I set up my social media and I'll set up a page and I'll call it the Tom Petty Project and I'll sit with it for a couple of weeks, three, three weeks, and I'll post some stuff out about Tom and I'll just sort of gauge my my own interest in it and see if it see if it sticks after two or three weeks. And it did. And I thought, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig into this, I'm gonna do this. So then I sort of thought, okay, well, what's gonna be the format? Do I do an album at a time? Do I do a song at a time? And I, and I sort of, you know, thought, well, I'll do a song at a time because then I can make the episode short. And then they're really consumable. I think might get more listeners if it's, you know, a 20 minute, 10 minute episode. And so then the first episode came out August 11th and I've been every week since, I think. So I've done 37, 37 episodes now. Yeah. So it was just, a, yeah. it was a whim. It certainly wasn't anything planned. Certainly, And again, I'm, I like you, probably not. Um, nothing where I thought, oh, I could actually make some money from this. No, I just thought, you know, I enjoy talking about music. I love Tom Petty. I think I could probably do a half decent job with it. I'm going to go for it. So that was it. But but very soon, I mean, it's it's incredible that very soon after starting, you got um, you got John Scott as 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 a, as a guest. You know, I mean, I mean, how did that come about? Is is he somebody who listened and then contacted you, or was it like you contacting him and and thinking it it might not happen, but you've got to try? I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, very much the latter. Yeah, I, so I just I just cold called him on on Twitter, uh, the blue, and I, I the same thing. Like I, I thought, well, there's no way this guy's only even going to respond because why would he? He's he's up there and I'm sort of down here. But he got back to me, and like I said, I mean, I found especially with Tom Petty, there's something about him that he he managed to surround himself with very very good people, and I think that that's part yeah. of because he was a very good person. You attract you know, you would track that same kind of thing. So I just reached out to John and said, Hey, I'm doing this podcast. Any chance you'd like to come on and we could talk about the book, but I'd love to talk about your relationship with Tom. And he got back to me. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Jumped online. And that was, that gave me a lot of confidence to say, well, maybe I could just approach anyone really then because what's the worst they can say is no. Right. But maybe yeah. they'll say yes. And you don't know if you don't ask. So. But what, what I really love about that episode as well is, I mean, that's the only interview one I've listened to so far. I will eventually yeah. listen to all of it and, but that one, I mean, it's it's amazing because it's like he was saying things and saying, "Oh, perhaps I shouldn't uh, shouldn't say any of this," and you were just there saying, "No, no, just keep going," because you mm-hmm. realised there and then what that whatever he was saying was like gold dust. He was coming up with like you know stuff that was just incredible that nobody yep. else would would know about, and you just knew to do that and. He, he was an incredible guest. I'm guessing, you know, it was almost like it was almost like you you pulled a cord on him and you let go, and that cord never, you know, it just kept going, and he kept coming out with this, yeah, these great stories. Well, it was it was yeah. I mean, again, I mean, it was, and he's such a nice man and a genuinely lovely, warm human being. I'd love to go and buy him a pint sometime if I get down to LA. But it was it wasn't exactly how I. Th- thought it would go initially i had to really sort of recalibrate because i had a very sort of 
I wanted it to be a, a quite a loose conversation. But John, obviously, yep. because he's he was in the middle of sort of book promo, he had sort of quite a few sort of stock stories that he would tell. So I had to sort of, get, again, give him space to sort of get those stories out and try and find a way to ask questions in between that. And I think sort of the first, because obviously I split the episode into two because it was such a long discussion and that's still edited down fairly judiciously. But the first part was yep. more that sort of him telling the story as he's done on different podcasts and, and sort of, you know, radio station things before. And the second half was where we really started talking a little bit more freely and getting into some stuff that maybe wasn't quite as, you know, wasn't quite as scripted. And again, you know, I, I know the one story he told me, he hasn't sort of talked about on a, another podcast that I've heard him because I did, you know, listen to quite a few before uh, to get a sense of him um, was when he's talking about. So he... I think it would have been, it was before he started working with Tom. So it might've been about 75, 74, 75. He'd been sent to um, LA to pick up Olivia Newton-John and bring her to Nashville. Yeah. So obviously another story and ends up telling me this story about, you know, they're, they're scrabbling around on her hotel floor where she's in this bikini and they're looking for her contact lens. I mean, that's just the most yeah. bizarre story, but so, so cool. Right. And I think that, had I not had that chance to do that sort of more free flowing, just getting into some of those questions and, and around that structure of, you know, it's, it's sort of his presentation, if you will, I don't think we would have got a story like that. Right. So, so I find that really, that was really fun. And it sort of sharpened my skills as a, as an interviewer. So. Yeah. It, it makes you very envious of some people as well, when they come up with stories like that one with the Olivia Newton, John. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when John's worked with, I mean, you look at the people John's hung out with, you know, he toured with Daltrey and sort of was promo man for Daltrey and in with Steely Dan yeah. and with all these and John Cougar, Johnny Cougar, and it's just like holy man, what a life, you know. Yeah, when he mentioned the uh, the John John Cougar uh, Mellencamp, the uh, the story about that and going and staying with John and John just inviting him, even I mean at this point, John didn't. You know, they, they didn't really have that much in common with each other, but John no. Mellencamp just seems like the sort of person who's just open enough just to go, well, I might not know you that well, but you can come and stay with me. And we'll just, yes. and it was like, when when he said that, I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of John as well. I think he's I think he's a great artist and overlooked as well, I think, uh, you know. Hugely overlooked. Yeah. Very much, yeah. Because um, I remember I watched a programme, uh, he was on uh, Jules Holland's programme over here once, John, John Cougar was. And uh, he's there, and he's just him with an acoustic guitar, and I think I think he was doing Jack and Jack and Diane, and yeah. um, just with an acoustic guitar, and he was there doing it, and then you could see sat down on the floor with these two. I can't remember who they were about now, but these two other people from different groups that were on the show, and they were just there transfixed watching him because there's something about him that, and I thought when I watched when I saw that I thought I'd probably be the same way. To be honest, I'd be there because I was there watching and thinking, this is just incredible what he's doing. And and I mean, it's an iconic song as well, that is. Yeah. I think what you're, talk, what you're talking about there is the same thing that Tom had. It's, it's charisma, right? When you're in, a, when yeah. you're in the presence yeah. of an artist who, who really just exudes that kind of charisma, it, it is this seductive and it's it's just it's overwhelming sometimes like my first experience with that was when i went to see bon jovi at the milton Keynes bowl in oh geez uh 1990 um and billy joel uh, sorry billy idol opened for them and billy yeah. idol 
strutted out on stage with these tight sort of velvet pants, no shirt. He had the shoulder length blonde dreadlocks and he came out and he instantly owned 60,000 people. Just everyone was wrapped. And that was my first thing. Ah, that's what a rock star is. Okay, now I totally get that. You know, and Bon Jovi didn't have that either, by the way. Like he didn't have that. So he didn't command that same presence on stage at all. Billy Joel, uh, Billy Joel, keep saying Billy Joel. Billy Idol was just streets ahead as a sort of a, a performer and a charismatic person. So, Hey, this is Brian with Concerts That Made Us podcast. And you're listening to Pods Like Us, a great show about other great shows. But we're going on a tangent here, but I would say yeah. that um, I think I think Bon Jovi are missing something now that they've not got Richie with them, really, because I always thought that it was the dual John and Richie that were the grab with Bon Jovi. Personally, I thought it was the interaction between those two and how those two were on stage. And now that, that you've got John and I mean, you know, he's the guitarist they've got is is a great guitarist and a fantastic producer as well to boot but he's not got that charisma that Richie had I always thought that Richie had something special and still does yeah it's like when you lose Slash out of Guns N' Roses right I mean what at that point it isn't this call it something else because it's not the same band anymore Richie Sambora I mean I think that Richie Sambora is a much or I find his voice much more interesting than John Bon Jovi's um, certainly when I saw them live he was a better live singer and I don't know if that was just an off night for John but Sambora was much, much better. I mean, his vocal, his, his harmonies, um, his pitch, his delivery, fantastic. And if you listen to his solo albums, um, great singer in, in his own right, right? And I totally agree. I mean, you lose yeah. Richie Sambora, you lose a creative element because Ron Bon Jovi doesn't yeah. write all the music for all those songs. You need someone else there. You need that foil there. And it's the same thing, right? Tom Petty and Mike Campbell, again, we talk about yes. Lennon and McCartney, we talk about Jagger and Richards. People don't talk about um, Petty and Campbell often enough because those two were perfect for each other. They always knew exactly how to write for each other, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the periods when when Tom hasn't worked with those musicians, and it's been basically a Tom Petty album with other people. I don't think it has that same sense to it. It's a bit like, I mean, I, I think of that with with Bruce Springsteen as well. I don't think Bruce is the same when he's not got the E Street band with him. And the same thing goes for Tom. I don't think Tom's the same without the guys from from the Heartbreakers backing him up because there's, there's something that they've got that he can't get with Sessionist or Friends. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's that's where, you know, and you create a bit of tension when you say, I'm going to go do a solo album. I think that always happens, you know. Um, yeah. But obviously, I mean, Mike Campbell was always there. He was there on Full Moon Fever. He was there on Wildflowers. He was there on, on um, oh, good Lord, uh, Highway Companion. So he was the one constant. So, you know, Ben Mon and Stan or Steve weren't there or Rom wasn't there or whatever. They brought in those session musicians to play those other things. And Jeff Lynn is a bass player. Obviously, so Jeff Lynn's going to play bass on Full Moon Fever. They don't need uh, Howie Epstein or, or Ron Blair, whoever's, you know. So you, you get that kind of thing. But Mike Campbell's always there because Tom needs Mike. You need that sort of when you've got that sort of musical understanding between two people. I think Tom at least had the he, he had that sort of re- reckoning and that realization that okay, I can use session musicians for everything else. I need Mike Campbell. Mike Campbell has to be here yeah. for it to sound like Tom Petty. And again, like you said, the production changes that dynamic, but at least you've got that through line of you get you know um, Saving Grace from Highway Companion, which is a solo record, but that's a Mike Campbell riff. You know that's it. well Tom Petty wrote it, but if Mike Campbell plays it that way, and you get that swagger from it that you wouldn't get from anyone else. And Tom Tom knew that. Absolutely, yeah. 
I think um, Mike, he's got a very, like you said, he's got this swagger. There's, there's like a groove to what he plays with his playing. But at the same time, there's a bit of a bluesiness thrown in there as well in, in his playing. Yeah. Uh, again, I mean, just a massively, massively underappreciated guitarist. And I would say that that's in the sort of in the mainstream. You know, musicians, guitarists know who Mike Campbell is. And there's not a, I don't think there's a sort of a serious guitarist alive who wouldn't say that Mike Campbell's one of the all time great rock and roll guitarists. You know, great, great writer. You know, you, you know, that you think about the first yep. two songs from Damn the Torpedo, Refugee and um, Listen to a Heart. Those are, those are on the same cassette yeah. tape that Mike brought over. Tom, listen to this cassette, pick anything off there that you like, and those two songs are on there. I mean, that's just insane, right? Two of the most iconic sort of opening yeah. guitar licks of the 70s, and that's that's Mike Campbell. That's who he is, right? And so, and again, as a lead yeah. player, which you talked about it earlier, not always a shredder, can do if he needs to, um, but he has those sort of those Chuck Berry sensibilities, he, but he plays for the song. And I think that's, that's the thing that I always go back to with all of the heartbreakers. Ben Montench does it brilliantly as well. They don't play over top of each other. They're not always trying to solo. It's not like Rush, where they're all at that level of virtuosity. They let the song breathe and they play exactly what the song needs at any given moment. And they have sort of a, a really peculiar ability to do that song in, song out, album in, album out for decades. Yep. That's, that's also why I find it interesting that um, that Mike is now with Fleetwood Mac because I've always thought that Mike's playing is very similar to Pete Green's, to Peter Green's from the original Fleetwood Mac. They've got a very same similar style with that that swat groove in their playing, but with the bluesiness in there. I mean, that's that's yeah. I think they're so much alike like each other, and I found it really interesting. I didn't find the getting Neil Finn the same but i found that when like i said when they announced that they got mike i thought oh that fits with the older fleetwood yep. mac stuff 100 percent, yeah and again like you said and also lindsey buckingham plays in parts quite a lot like peter green which is why he was a good fit for the band in the first place right so you get those same sort of sensibilities yeah i mean it's a no-brainer mike campbell mike campbell could play pretty much any rock band i think really i don't think he'd have a hard time fitting it especially that that era that era sort of what we you know what's called classic rock um which i don't really understand because i don't really i don't really get i don't know about you but i don't get that label classic rock i mean what do you mean what does that mean is it a the 70s to the 90s like what what is it just an age thing is it because i mean sabbath is that the same as the heartbreakers because they're both sort of considered classic rock but they're they're stylistically they're so different that i don't really know why that's a a genre so i don't know no, no. But then again, I don't get genres anywhere. I don't, you know, when people pick those sort of things, I'm like, okay, yeah. how, how can you say that Deep Purple, Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers, Fleetwood Mac, they're all three, they're all different to each other. So why are you classing them all in this same thing? It's it's weird. So um, I know for one, know for one episode – um, oh, I'm just going to say as, as passing, I thought it was a really interesting fact when you pointed out that uh, they kept the, the recording of Mike's wife at the beginning of one of the one of the songs on the, the studio release as well from the original yeah. demo for the, from, that Mike had recorded. Yeah, it's um, – oh, good Lord. I'm, it's the, one of the most famous Heartbreaker songs, and now I'm struggling to bring it to mind. That is – let me look. Come on, I have to look. Um even the losers, yeah, of course. So yeah, she, yeah. so basically it was because Mike, obviously, again, he'd got this little four-track tape recorder that Marcy, had, I think Marcy had actually bought for him, and so that's where he'd do all his demos and to bring into Tom, 
And of course, he's he's trying to record something, and she's got the I think it's the washing machine on, and he's complaining. It's like I'm trying to freaking yep. record here. Like if you turn that on, she's like, it's just the normal noises in here, you know. So, so this is what a house sounds like, Mike. If you don't want it, you just move somewhere else. Yes, I love that sort of that sort of natural um, humanity. I think that, that it comes through in it, right? So you know, you might be a big rock star, but I got to do the laundry, so that's your problem, not mine. So. Yep. As, as a tangent, that's 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 one of the reasons why my favourite uh, Bruce Springsteen on his own album without the E Street Band would be would be Nebraska because that is a four track recording that he made at home, and you can hear like the doors and screech and people walking in the background in the in the corridor yep. outside and things, and there's a lovely homeliness to it to a four track home recording that's that's. You know, you don't get on a studio recording, or you, you wouldn't, because they wouldn't allow anything like that to happen in a studio. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting creative choice too, right? I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, Jackson Brown did that deliberately with Running on Empty, where that was recorded in hotel rooms on the tour bus. So you get, you can hear, you know, you can hear traffic noise. That creative decision. Well, we want this to sound, or I want this to sound very, very natural, and that's a very deliberate decision to do that, right? So I think that it's a, it's always when it's deliberate. It's always a good thing. Sometimes, you know, if you listen to some recordings, you can tell it's not deliberate, and it's just either they ran a studio time, ran out of studio time, or they didn't re- recognize it. But I don't know I like those kinds of things. It gives it gives rock and roll a bit of humanity. It's the same thing with you know Baba O'Reilly by the Who. Keith Moon comes in like twenty beats per minute too fast. He's way too fast, and you can hear him slow <laughs> yeah. down. And so it's like, you know what though? Let's let's leave that in because that it makes it feel like it's got some energy, some real natural human energy to it. So it's a human plane, not a, it's not a drum machine. Right. So I like those creative decisions that people make. Absolutely. And uh, good call there with Keith Moon. I think he was a great, fantastic drummer. I'm agent Scott and I'm Cam the provocateur and we're from the spy hards movie podcast. That's right. And you are listening to pods like us, the podcast that has a license to thrill. So I, I also like about your show, so um, part of the structure that you've got is you'll start talking about the song and then you'll you'll break for, for a trivia. And a couple of times I've got the trivia question right. Sometimes I've got it wrong, of course. And then you come back and almost like you'll do a bit more and then come out with your ratings for the songs as well, which must be really difficult to do that, you know, to come up with a rating for a song that you obviously love, but. I don't know if I could do that for a, for a group or a band that I love. I'm not sure I could sort of say, well, I'll only give this eight because it's not a 10, but I do love the song. But yeah, it must be really tricky. I kind of, I really, I won't say struggle, struggle isn't exactly the right word, but I, I, I thought about that for a while. I thought about, well, should I, should I do a rating? Or do I just leave it open and say, this is my sort of, you know, this is what I think about the song. But at the end of the day, I thought, well, it's something that you typically would expect from a an album or a song review podcast. So that well, I'll, I'll go with it and I'll, I'll see how it goes. And I caught some, I caught a little bit of heat on uh, the Tom Petty Nation because I'd published the first my ratings from side one of the of the debut album. Because I, I, I mean, I do try to be honest, and I think that I, I do have a problem with everyone. Oh well, every every Tom Petty song's a ten, a ten out of ten. Well, then none of them are a ten. Out of, if everything's the same, then nothing's exceptional, and I, I I don't agree with that at all. You know, so I think there are some songs that are better than others and he yep. and he grew as a songwriter so much that to sort of say that those first two albums are all 10 out of 10 it just doesn't give you anywhere to go right it's the same thing if you come in and you play an 
if you're playing every single instrument at full volume, at full speed at the start of a song, and you do that through the whole song, the song doesn't build. It doesn't go anywhere, and there's nothing. There's no sort of story to be told there, right? So, yeah. so I said, like I said, I, I got a bit of a heat because anything that's rock and roll, it's a great song, um, yeah. and it's, it's been a radio staple for 20 years, but I gave that one a 5 out of 10, which is, again, it's in the middle. It's average. It's not a bad song, but to me, it's just it's a very, very basic it's just a very basic rock and roll song. It's got a standard riff. There wasn't anything in there when I really sort of dug into it that jumped out at me. There's no, I wasn't sort of blown away by any of the lyrics, which I usually am at least one line in every song. It's like, wow, I wish I'd written that. So I just thought, well, that's to me, that's a five. That's, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a five. I don't think any of them are going to go to three, um, but I'm, I'm okay with yeah. that. So I posted this on the, the Tom Petty Nation. Oh, we you sort of you remember that yeah tom petty fans are pretty rabid you know you got to be careful so i stopped posting the scores on that um facebook group but um yeah i, I think i like so sort of, i like it because it wraps up the episode right it sort of it sort of brings it to a, an actual conclusion so that, that's kind of why i wanted to put that in there and i appreciate i know i know you've listened to most of the episodes so i really really appreciate that because i i take the uh any compliment or criticism much more seriously coming from someone who's listened to most of the most of the show so thank you very much well, I'm enjoying it, so I mean, you know, I'm I'm going to keep going until you get to the last song. But then again, <laughs> I'm sort of hoping that they might come up with find something to release in that meantime to to surprise you and go, oh, we've pulled this out of the vaults because there must be stuff there for sure. Oh yeah, and I mean they've done that a couple times already, right? Playback in 1995 was a box set that they put out with stuff that was either. Like there was a few of the early Mudcrutch recordings on there. There were some alternate takes, the B sides and the outtakes from the albums. And then they did um, National National Treasure. Is that what it's called? Yeah, National Treasure. That box set, which was like twenty, I want to say twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. So I'm sure there's there's still stuff there that they're going to go back to. And then there's always going to be sort of live stuff that they find. There'll be, you know, again from the Wildflowers uh, sessions, they have all those home demos which they sort of cleaned up and, and produced yeah. and made them sound absolutely beautiful. So there's lots of stuff to do. And again, then again, I mean, so I mapped out just going through the Tom Petty, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and Mudcrutch albums. It's 262 episodes. Uh, and that takes me to July 15th, 2026. And that's, that's if I stick to two guest episodes per season. Um, so I think that after that, I'll, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the Tom Petty project can be bigger than just going through the, the album song by song. I can always go back and just just talk to fans, just talk to, you know, try and engage more people. So I don't really see an end point to it at this point, but we'll see how it goes, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll keep um, I'll keep tagging Mike Campbell and Ben Munt in the hope that they might contact you at some point. Well, and I'll definitely contact them. Like I've got it. I definitely have like my, my dream, my dream list. Um, it's sort of, well, get a bit more cachet, get a few more people in who are, you know, not, not, not heartbreakers. Um, but I did contact Steve Ferroni and I'm hoping that he'll, he'll get back to me. I know he's on tour with, um, what's his name? The, oh, for goodness sake. Good love is on the way. Oh my God. I can't think of his name now. Anyways, he's on tour now with another, with another band. Um, so I think once he's done that, I'll touch base with him again. Cause Steve's done a few sort of indie podcasts and seems like a, a pretty cool guy. So I'm hoping that I can speak to him, especially as a drummer. Right. Yeah, Steve is a really nice guy. He's very open to yeah. anybody. I know that from from gigs that he's done, and you know, and people say, "No, oh, I've just been speaking with Steve Perroni." And it's like he, um, I get the sense with Steve that he's very like Tom, where Tom seemed to me to be very open and almost humble about 
what he was what he was technically you know he was like oh he'll just speak to anybody and didn't realize or understood or understand the almost the level of talent that he had in him in a sense yeah yeah for sure i think there's always that misunderstanding about tom that he that he was super laid back because he came across it he sort of had that sort of lugubrious laconic sort of way of moving and that you know yeah. well certainly in, in in his later life but he was very, very, very shy. Like he'd never hung out after shows. He would, he would, he would go out stage left. The band went stage right, and they'd go hang out in the in the dressing room and the, you know some backstage people, whatever. But Tom was always just straight on the bus. I just want to go home, sort of thing and whatnot. Um, but in terms of sort of his his humility and sort of sense of who he was and his ego, I think hundred percent. Like he, he just he made music because that's all he could do. When the songs come to you the way they do and the way they did with him, what else he's supposed to do? He's a musician, he's a songwriter, he's a, a poet, he's a you know a wordsmith. So that was never an option. And, and, the, and the stardom and the glitter and everything, obviously enjoy because it affords you a, a comfortable life and gives you opportunities to do things that other people don't get. But it was never about that. It was first and foremost about the music. And Steve Ferroni, like 100% the same. Like you said, I mean, I've heard him speak in different interviews and on different shows and, and even live. And what, I mean, just... I mean, look at that guy's resume. Look at that guy's resume. I mean, yes. it is off yeah. the chart when you actually dig into who Steve Ferroni has played with. It's incredible. And then to be the full-time member of the Heartbreakers as well, I, I think says a lot about that band. When you've got this yeah. guy coming in who's a you know a, a wanted session musician, he can be working 20 hours a week just doing session and getting paid really, really well. No, I actually want to be part of this band. Now I want to actually be in this band. So I think that's I think that's super cool and speaks a lot, speaks a lot about him. I think that as well. So when you're recording the show then, what, what do you use to, how do you record the show? Is is it done in one go and then you edit it or do you do it in stages and then how do you actually edit the show? Okay, so I sit down um, usually on either Monday or Tuesday night and I sit down and I kind of have a sense of, you know, the stories behind some of the songs because I know a lot of those reasonably well. So then I'll go back and look for specifics. And I use um, Paul Zolo's book, uh, Conversations with Tom Petty, is my Bible. So that's I have it. It's always right here on my desk. Because um, that's got the, that's, those are the interviews with Tom that Paul did over a series of sort of 16 months in his, in his home in Malibu. And so that's my sort of my primary source material. That's Tom talking about the song. So that's, you know, you can trust what's coming out of that book. And then I'll Google and sort of see if there's any more interviews, if there's anything with Mike or if there's any sort of, you know, uh, production like Rick Rubin's talked about a song or whatever it might be. And start sort of writing that out. Um, write my Tom Petty, uh, my Petty trivia question. Get the script ready to go. Give it a yep. read through. You know, find any sort of mistake. Okay, well, actually, that doesn't sound right. The tense is wrong there. Or I've done that differently or whatever. And then just sit down, plug in, uh, fire up Adobe Audition. I've got my little mic here. And then I do it. I basically just record in one take with warts and all. And then go back, and then I'll edit. So then I'll take out all the pops and hisses and all that kind of stuff. You know, take all that out, um, get my levels right, and then dub the music back in and, and do the cut points um, to make sure that everything. And again, listen to it to see, okay, well, which of those three takes of that one sentence, <laughs> which one sounds best? Adjust that, you know, and even even <laughs> down to things like I, I, in, as I've gone on, getting the gaps between things right because i'd always kind of i'd always tend to squish things up in the early episodes so it was every sentence sort of was run on but now i'll tend to, i can leave a little bit more a two or three second pause and that's okay and so sort of realize that that you know you don't want dead air in a podcast but sometimes you don't want to sort of have no gap between two or two thoughts because then it doesn't really sound like a 
it doesn't sound like someone's speaking properly then. So, so I sort of, that's yeah. what I've tweaked as I've gone along and sort of uh, done that. And then, you know, just the usual sort of high pass EQ and DS and denoise and all that kind of stuff. So and one thing I did learn now, no, you don't have as much in England. So we have um, convection heat in Canada. Uh, most houses are sort of yeah. forced air. So the one thing that I did learn from my friend is always turn off your furnace because <laughs> it eliminates a hell of a lot of background noise. <laughs> so, yeah, and you also uh, a lot of podcasters out that way have told told me about you know turning off the aircon as well because because that that causes problems as well apparently. Yeah, yeah, it's just the noise. Yeah, it's so loud, right? And it's diff- it, it gets difficult because I think three nights ago I turned off the heat because it's the same thing, right? It's just it's just the, the fan turned off the heat, but then I forgot to turn it back on before I went to bed. Now <sighs> it wouldn't right. normally be a problem, but in February in Saskatchewan we get to minus 30 and it was a cold night and the house had yep. dropped to, I think it was only about eight Celsius by the time morning came around and my wife came in, Kev, Kev, I think the furnace is broke. I'm like, Oh no, I think I just forgot to turn it on. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my kids freezing. And then the music as well, that your, your show music is great. It does really good interpretations of Tom's, of Tom's music. Uh, that is really good as well. Yeah, it's my best friend, Randy Woods. He, so he's the guy who um, records my songs. I, I go in there, so he's a, he's a, I mean, a career musician. He's been in bands. He's played thousands and thousands of gigs across Canada. Um, he's a, he has his own studio. He's a producer, a sound engineer. He does on-site sound for sports and for movies and for TV shows. And he writes, you know, incidental music for TV shows. So he's a, he's a musician in a very, very broad sense. And again, my best yeah. friend. So we get together once or twice a year, and I'll take a song in and say, what do you think of this? He'll usually say, no. I'll say, okay, I'll bring another one. He's like, that's good. Um, maybe change this. And the first thing he always says is, anything you can lose? Because I tend to be a little bit verbose, where concision in songwriting yep. is is quite important. So that's one thing I've definitely learned. So Randy, I go to, you know, two, three weeks before the start of every season, say, hey, what about these? Can I, can I get these, you know, four or five? Or sometimes I'll give him six, and I'll pick three or four. Um, and I've added more of those into the the later episodes. Obviously, we've got, you know, I think there's five stings in each episode now, where I think the first ones were maybe only three. But I like having that sort of, yep. that music in there just gives it a bit of, gives it a bit of breathing space and stops my voice and just lets you hear a little bit of music. And yeah, he does such a phenomenal, he's a great guitarist. I mean, a really, really top-notch guitarist. Um, so I love having him uh, send me his interpretations. And they've got a consistency to them too, because we don't have drums or bass or anything in there it's just guitar you get that sort of really consistent raw feel to them which i I just i think adds a lot to it so yeah i'm glad you enjoy those yeah is he the one who did the theme music as well because i mean that's that's more built up you've got drums and you've got full instrumentation on the theme yeah so that was for season two i'd sent him the things that i was thinking about and then he sent me those back but also had sent this this theme tune back i was like oh man that's killer but for the for that season he he'd sang the Tom Petty podcast where the name is the Tom Petty project. So yes. we re-recorded the vocal for season three and now I use it as my theme music. Cause it's, and it's that thing of sort of, it feels like a theme tune. It's the right length. It's got a hook to it. And it's like, dude, that's just so cool. But he sent me that out of the blue, you know, he just did that on his own bat. And so, yeah, I love Randy. He's my best friend. That's great. And then you've got that great logo as well. That, that reminds me of, you know, the, the classic, you know, the, just a great picture there of, of Tom. Yeah. yeah. And so that's a guy called Ed Booth. Um, and I'd encourage all listeners to uh, to go check him out. It's Ed Booth underscore art on Instagram. So he does these, and they're sort of, I think they're probably about 
four foot by four foot. That piece is a, you know, it's it's a painting, a four foot by four foot. I think he uses sort of spray. Or I'm not too sure exactly how he does it, but it's a phenomenal, phenomenal graphic artist. Um, and so I sort of just reached out to him and found that image online as I was looking for things. I'd, I'd gone through a couple of iterations of different logos for the for the podcast, and I found that. And I thought, well, I'll contact him, see if he minds me using it, because it's an indie podcast. It's not being used for commercial purposes. And again, he said, yeah, go for it, man. Um, and so I sort of credit him in, I try to credit him in the episode notes now, which I wasn't doing initially. Um, but I'm so thankful him to, thankful to him too, because it is a great image. Um, and it's got yeah. some, you know, you can use that in different formats. I want to get that on T-shirts and mugs eventually, because um, I think it'll be super cool. And it's, yeah, it's a, it's a classic image. It's that image off, again, I think it's, I'm pretty sure the compilation is American Treasure. I'm losing losing my mind, but but it's that, yeah, it's that iconic image of Tom in his, in his later years. It is. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit like it reminds me of when I was talking to the guys who do the ELO podcast with their logo and I, and I basically said the same thing to them as I'm going to say to you. I mean, you know, it's, it tells you all that you need to know. You see that picture and you know, you know what you're getting, you know, it's a Tom Petty. It's a podcast yeah. all about Tom Petty. So, Hey, this is Tim for bad counsel. You want some good counsel? Keep listening to the smooth dulcet tones of Marv on pods like us. <laughs> so. It's interesting that you're calling your show the Tom Petty Project as well, as opposed to going the Tom Petty Podcast as well. It's like it's almost like there's something a bit more to it than it just being a podcast. It's an actual project and something that I mean, I mean, yeah. Why, why, why say project as opposed to podcast? Is it more? <laughs> is the more to it? You've got the the site and the. You know what? Yeah, basically, why why project and not podcast? Go on. It's a great question. Um, two reasons. One is logistical. One, I didn't want it to be misconstrued as being driven by the Tom Petty estate. I wanted it to be clear that this is, and I, I always I've started saying that more often now in the episodes that this yep. is not affiliated with Tom Petty's estate because I don't want to impinge on any of their intellectual property and those kinds of things. I want to be respectful of that. So that was one reason. And the other reason is that I, I sort of. I have this idea that I want to build it out to be bigger than just just my podcast. So I really, eventually, what I'd love to build out is the website to become a hub for, you know, everyone upload your ticket stubs. Let's see if we can find someone who's got one ticket stub from every single Tom Petty show. You know, there's, there's setlist.fm has all the set lists, but they're not always 100% accurate. Let's see if we can get those resolved. And we'll, so to make it sort of a one-stop shop for everything you need to know let's get the lyrics on there and absolutely accurate because you know some some of the lyrics online aren't, aren't always completely correct so i wanted i had this idea that eventually it would be bigger than just the episodes and that it would sort of stand as a a, a fan resource um for people to come back to and, and and use so that that was my idea generally i think eventually i will start looking at that sort of that wider application but that that was why i went with project rather than just podcast so yeah cool so you've explained the research and um so have you actually got a favorite tom petty album it's an awful question to ask someone who's a fan have you got a favorite album of tom's i do um but i will have to i will have to caveat this so my favorite album is wildflowers because that was the album yep that that took me from being a fan you know out of quotes to being a real sort of hardcore fan. That was the album where I realized, oh, wait a minute, this guy's not just a, a 70s, 80s rocker. This guy's a really, really, really talented songwriter. And the emotion and the vulnerability on a lot of those songs on Wildflowers and the sort of the 
the blend of different sounds and different styles and the way it brings you up and brings you back down and some of the instrumentation and the, and the subject it just blew me away it absolutely blew my mind i couldn't the first time i heard wildflowers and it was this was like this was fairly recent like i got into tom petty I, would, I mean, I've always he's always been around, right? He's been around all of our lives and on the radio. So I knew Free Falling. I knew I Won't Back yep. Down. I knew Learning to Fly, some of those classic songs from the radio. But I never really connected the dots with it being someone I should maybe listen to and check out. Um, and so when I got to Wildflowers, I, well, sorry, I'd, I'd started about eight years ago. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give his catalog a listen. And I did the same thing with Springsteen and, you know, and John Prine and Steve Earle and those guys. So I thought, well, I'll give his catalog a listen, listen to the first few albums. And the first two, three, four albums, I thought, oh, yeah, this guy's pretty good like i haven't really heard a really bad song on any of these albums and so i sort of listened to i think probably maybe the first seven or eight and then sort of drifted away and got interested you know shiny something else something else got my interest listen to wildflowers and as soon as that first song came in it just sort of like oh this is this is good and then you go down to the second track and the third track and the fourth and there's 15 tracks and every single track is just wow that's just an absolutely amazing album. so wildflowers is definitely if i had to pick one that's the one i'm always going to go to um heartbreakers records i would go with alternately it can be any one of either hard promises last dj or hypnotic eye sometimes damn the torpedoes but i find with damn the torpedoes i know the songs yep. they're just there's there's so much part of the rock and roll firmament that it's like it's like queen right it's like uh, bohemian rhapsody you don't need to listen to bohemian rhapsody because it's just there it's implanted in your brain. It's just it's burned onto your synapses that I don't tend to listen to that song very often. Same thing with Stay Away to Heaven. Same thing with Hotel California. So Torpedoes, I, maybe I under, underappreciate sometimes, but yeah, Hard Promises, I think, is as the follow-up to Damn the Torpedoes, difficult thing to do to follow up that album. And I think they actually genuinely think that they sort of improved. I think they honed everything they'd learned on Damn the Torpedoes and made it even better. And it was a, it's a perfect pop rock album but with some really interesting stuff on it too and then last dj and hypnotic Eye. last dj i mean let's talk about that here's here's an album that flips its middle finger at the record industry and it's a commission this has got it's on a label it's on a major label but it's tom saying that this whole industry is bs um i I don't like this i don't like that and then it's got these moments of vulnerability on it too and it's sort of the end of his sort of you know it comes after echo and it's the end of he's getting over the breakup now and he's sort of heading into he's, he's taking his is sadness and turning the balling that up and turning it into sort of anger and pushing that back outwards and, and pushing back out right so so I love that album and then Hypnotic Eye the last album again you know you get you get artists like I would say and I don't know where you stand on Springsteen's later work but I think that most of those aging rockers quote unquote they tend to taper off and their 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 creative output dwindles a little bit and they go into sort of greatest hits mode right a lot of them Fleetwood Mac certainly you, you would you could say that about um, but Hypnotic yeah. Eye. It's got such an urgency and such a uh, sort of a freshness that it, that's a band that still they still are still relevant. They still have something to say, and Tom still has all these sort of killer licks and these killer lyrics that he's getting out there. So I don't think that that would have been, I don't think that would have been the last album had he not passed away. It probably maybe he wouldn't have toured after that or nearly as much, but I think he still had so much left in him that that was uh, so much good stuff. And Hypnotic Eye is yeah, it's an absolute masterpiece and was their first number one album. Weirdly. Wow. So that's a long answer wow. to a simple I'm question. I'm surprised at that. <laughs> well, it's a good answer, you know. <laughs> People listening to you for the first time will now that you know now that you know your onion, you you know, you know your onions. <laughs> as we say over here. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I haven't said that expression so, in a long time. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that's because you're in Canada and you're not in the UK, so you won't hear it in Canada. So um, <laughs> 
Would would you say that that is what what would you say is a good album for a new person to to Tom Petty uh, to uh, to start on? Would you say start at the beginning and work the way through, or I mean, what, what would you say the standout album is the standout album for people to start with? Again, that's a slightly tricky one because I think you know, and obviously you would know too. As a musician, you tend to gauge that based on the person you're dealing with, right? So if it's someone who's into heavy rock, I would pick a different album than if it's someone who's just more into sort of either pop or radio rock, right? So generally, I would say probably Full Moon Fever, just because it's got Free Falling, Walk Back yep. Down, it's got You're You're So Bad, it's got they're really sort of hooky songs, right? There, there's something that you can go away humming and you can you can sing the chorus to. So probably that one. Um, if it was someone who was more into sort of a little bit heavier stuff, I might go with Hypnotic Eye um, or, you know, Echo. You, you probably couldn't really go wrong with Echo. Um, I definitely wouldn't go with one of the first two albums, actually, because it, the the first album was, you know, it, it's, it's an amazing album as a whole, but the individual songs are, I think the, the sequencing of it is very curious. You know, it's got uh, Rocking Around With You as the first track, and it's this weird sort of, semi garage punky type of feel to it and then american girl is the last track on the album where most bands these days that's your lead off right i mean there, there's your lead song is american girl to really grab people um and i think if G- jimmy iovine had produced that album it certainly would have been but you get breakdown at number two you know so there's i think that i think it would be a little bit more challenging for someone who's not who's on the fence um similarly with you're going to get it damn the torpedoes you could probably do but i think yeah i think i'd go with full moon fever on average, yeah, overall, yeah, because Full Moon Fever gets it's um, it's got a lot of the different styles of Tom on there. There's so much variety yeah. on the album that you could sort of go, and then you'll say to them, "Well, if you like the rockier stuff that's on Full Moon Fever, go there. If you like the softer stuff, you'll like this." Yeah. Or it's it's a good it's a good um, yeah. So. I've wrote, I've written on the bullet points as well about show changes and um and I mean you did you did try to change the format once or twice but it, it's like you've come back to the the pattern that you had to start with now where you've got the talking about it have the trivia and then come back for a bit more information and that so I I mean have you have you worked out that you've actually got the right structure now to the show I think so. Um, yeah, and it was it was trying to find that balance between what it, those sort of those those different sort of um, approaches that I took was. I just tried to think, and I always I don't know if you I don't know if you do the same thing, but I'll tend to almost always or every second episode at least listen back to in full, just so that I can listen to it as a listener and just listen to the flow of it. So okay, am I am I kind of drifting off into something that might get a bit boring? So that's where I, that's that's where the, the the petty trivia definitely comes in. Is like I, I want to break that up, so I'm not just talking for eleven minutes about nerding out about a drum sound or a, or a guitar lick, or you know, because I know that for lay people that might get a little bit dense. Sometimes I try not to get too involved in too in depth with that stuff. Um, so just trying to get that structure of okay, let's talk about the background of the song, as you know, a bit of background about the song. Um, then get into the what I'm hearing, what I'm what I'm listening to when you sort of break down the individual parts and how it sounds as a whole. Then do the 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 um the break, so do the petty trivia, 
then do sort of the wrap up. And usually I wrap up with the lyrics. I, I've sort of gone back to that again. Of sort of, I think that's a good place to end sometimes. Although sometimes if the lyric is so strong, I'll open with it um, and then finish with sort of final thoughts and and the sort of the the tail end of it. So I, I don't think that I'll, I, I still think that I'll sometimes change some of the order of that. Because I know the first, I don't know, I think the first five, it was always I did the drums first, then the bass, then the guitar, then the vocals, and then the lyrics. And that's where I sort of went away from that. I sort of try and change that up because I thought, well, that might get a little bit, it might get a bit boring. And it's also, I don't want to burn myself out because I could sit and talk about the drums for 10 minutes easily because I'm a, you know, that's my thing. Yeah. But I don't want to sort of, again, I don't want to get into that situation where I'm sort of being a little bit boring. So I've been sort of tweaking those a little bit as I go. But that that general structure now that I have, I think is the one that I'm, I'm settled on just in terms of when I talk about the background, when I talk about the music, when I talk about the you know, sort of the, the tail end and my final thoughts. So I think that's sort of, that's your beginning, middle middle and end narratively. So, yeah. I mean, if, if you wanted to play with it, I mean, there, there would be nothing wrong with you possibly doing expanded versions for fans on your, on your website or through a Patreon or something at some point, if ever you wanted to. And then you, you could really yeah, I mean, go to town then with your, you know, you're wanting to talk about the music and go as far as you want to then all oh, i love what he does on the drums here when he does that fill that's that's off that's not quite but yeah. um yeah because st- stan's well, stan drumming you know, he's brilliant go on yeah and even getting into stuff like actually sitting down with either with randy or get a, a super cool thing to be able to do would be get a bunch of musicians in and saying, yeah. okay, now we're going to now. So listen to what he's playing, get them to really learn it. And if you get the isolated tracks, that would obviously be helpful. But and sort of sit down and say, okay, this is actually watch what he's playing, watch how he's doing this. Because even if the way that Stan plays traditional grip, uh, and sort of Steve, but a lot of drummers play match grip, and that really does so. I should or explain maybe. So traditional grip is when you see a, a guy, he's got his his stick is sideways almost, and it's like a like a marching band drummer would play side stick, right? And then a traditional yeah. grip, match grip is where the sticks are coming out parallel both times and you, and you sort of, you're hitting this, the, the stroke is exactly the same. Um, and it changes completely the way you, you, your drum fills change entirely and it changes the way you really yeah. play drums and it makes a difference on, makes a difference on power. It makes a difference on what drums you can hit in a certain sequence. So Stan's fills, I have a really hard time playing because I play match grip. I can't play side stick. I can't play traditional. So yeah. it, again, talking about some of those things, if you want to get into real nerdy stuff and really, you know, the super nerdy stuff about mic placement on certain things like that Randy could talk about, well, why does this sound this way? Oh, it's because they had, you know, the bass was mic'd twice from two different angles and then there's another yeah. mic at the back of the room. So they're picking up different dynamics just on where those things are placed in the room, right? So getting some of that stuff would be incredible. But again, I think you'd lose people within the first five minutes if that's all it was about. So I've tried to make it, interesting enough for musicians and lay people and i i think i've got that balance i i certainly my interactions online have been i have had conversations with musicians who who talk more on that side of things and lay people who want to talk more about tom and his relationship in the background of the song so again just finding that balance and trying to package it into the right time frame that's been my sort of my main concern of getting that right for the first three seasons and i think i think i'm pretty happy with where it's at so so I'm, I'm about to nerd out now, and I'm going to say that that what you, that you said about the bass. Um, yeah. If I use an acoustic bass that I've got behind me here, uh, when I'm yeah. in a studio and I record that, I have a microphone directly near the actual sound hole for the bass, and yeah. then I've got an, there's another microphone a bit further away in the room, and then it's also plugged in as well and DI'd. 
which is direct yeah. in, injection. So what you'll do is you'll plug it in and it goes directly into the into the system to record that. So my bass sound on the acoustic bass is made up of three different tracks, basically. So you've got those three, and then you merge them yeah. to make a really nice sound that captures everything. So you've got the natural res you know uh, reverb of the room there you've got the closeness of the natural sound and then you've got the pickup sound as well on there so you know sorry i just went off on a tangent there no no it's the same thing but it's, it's you were talking about earlier right when you trigger drums so when i record my on the couple of songs that i've recorded on on a live kit with my friend um we trigger all the time right because especially in in a modern day your kick drum, every single rock band, almost every single rock band out there, their kick is definitely triggered because you've got you want that natural warmth from the real drum, but to get that real yep. bottom end that's in all songs now, you, you've got to add a, a sampling as well. And the same thing with snares and sometimes a little bit with toms, and you, not so much on cymbals, right? You really a cymbal sounds like a cymbal. It's so difficult to to sort of fake that. So you really want real cymbals. But totally, yeah. I mean, that, those are all tricks of the trade and those are all ways to get the best sound out. And I don't think it's, you know, oh, that's cheating. Well, it's not cheating. It's just sort of augmenting the sound. You know, you could say that synthesizers are cheating, sequencing is cheating. Well, as long as the sound, song sounds good at the other end and if you can play it live, you know, that's the only thing that really matters. And a lot of bands play to tracks. I saw The Who in Saskatoon and, you know, when they're playing Barbara O'Reilly, there's no keyboard player on stage. You know, and they've got sort of, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. there's some additional guitar that you, there's no one's playing that. That's just being played in on tape because that's the only way you can do it. So I've, I have no problem with that kind of stuff. They've done that with Barbara O'Reilly since they first started playing it because there's old footage of them doing it to a click. And yeah. I mean, I remember um, them saying that they had a lot of problems a lot of the time back in the day because sometimes it wouldn't start the recording yeah. and they'd be there waiting and, and they couldn't get it to work. So that yeah. made it tricky in those days. So um We'll touch a bit more on the guest, I think. So how have you chosen the guest that you've got? And then I'm guessing you must do a lot of research into them leading up to it so you know what you're going to talk to them about. Yeah, so basically I, I sort of decided on a format of what I wanted to do was have my, my idea at the gate was to have a mid-season guest who would be in some way connected to Tom. So that's, you know, John Scott, um, yep. Paul Zolo, and Jake Thistle would be my three guests who sort of have, have some connection to Tom. And then I wanted to just talk to another fan just to sort of have that more general conversation and find out their story. Cause I know that's a, it's just always fun talking to other fans about something you both nerd out about, but also it's that way of getting on a podcast site. It's a way of getting engagement, right? Because if, if I have someone on a podcast and they tell their friends, Oh, I'm on a podcast, you may be going to cast your net a little bit wider. So it, there's, there's sort of the two pronged yeah. reason for doing that. Um, basically I, initially again i sort of just cold called john scott and thought well i'll see i'll see if that's even a possibility and got him um and then uh dallas helliker actually reached out to me because he'd sort of stumbled across the podcast and said well he, he's a podcaster and he said i'd love to be on and talk about it because I've, I've seen tom a bunch of times and i'm a huge fan so i had him on and that was great because again with him being a podcaster it was a really easy one to do we had a great chat he's a craft beer guy too yep. so it was there was a lot of sort of uh common interest and then moving forward i sort of I'm starting to sort of look at, okay, well, what can I bring into the conversation that maybe people haven't heard before? Because so far, you know, John Scott, Paul Zolo, you can find them on different podcasts. You can hear them on different YouTube channels. So I'm looking at, you know, people, 
you know, his, his manager, Mary, I'd love to get her on the podcast. I'd love to get, yeah. you know, Bugs Wydell, who famously doesn't do interviews, but he'd be, he'd be a dream guest. So trying to think outside the box a little bit on, on getting a bit more peripheral. You know, Tom Petty's photographer, his videographer, I'd love to speak to him. The guy who does the murals down in Gainesville. Um, and then again, trying to find, trying to balance things out so I can get more female guests on because I don't want this to be, you know, totally guy oriented because obviously Tom yeah. had a lot of women in his life. Dana Petty would be, you know, again, one of my absolute top three, top three guests. Um, and she might eventually because yep. she's very connected to the Tom Petty community online. Um, so it's basically, yeah, I mean, I just in terms of sort of the the fan guests, I've had two people ask to be on the show. One I asked, um, and I've got two or three others who have asked. So I've got like a you know a good sort of queue there of people I can bring on, and then picking the guests who are more connected. That's just a, a question of sitting down and thinking, right? Who can I contact? You'll say yes, and going from there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey there, this is Bobby with the Rock Guys Podcast, and you are listening to Marv Smooth on the Pods Like Us Podcast. Check them out. So what advice would you give to people if they wanted to start a podcast of their own? Biggest piece of advice, I would say, honestly, is do it because you love it. If you don't love it and you don't do it just for the joy of doing it, I it would become a job, right? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be something you enjoy. It would just become work. And at that point, I mean, you know, independent podcasters, only one in 75, hundred thousand probably ever managed to monetize their podcast. So if you're going to do it, do it because you really, really love the topic that you're going to talk about. And then the other thing I would say is, especially if it's sort of something specific to either an artist or a, a TV show or something like that, find that community online. And that was something that I was very, very lucky with with my podcast because it is very specific. And there are two or three very big online communities for Tom Petty fans. So I was able to find that audience very, very quickly and sort of, quote unquote, market directly to them. I don't have to just sort of send everything out and hope, hope that Google, you know, pr- promotes my podcast for me. I was able to do that one v- one-to-one with the actual fans. So those are the two things that I, I've learned sort of moving forward is, yeah, do it because you love it um, and give it your all. And then try and find your community and be proactive in engaging engaging them and don't wait for them to come to you. So what podcast do you enjoy listening to yourself? Okay, so there's a f- I've probably got, I would say I've probably got about seven or eight that I listen to either religiously or, you know, more often than not. So I wanted to give a shout out to the Honest and Unmerciful podcast. So I'm kind of ended up being friends with the host of that. It's an album review podcast, um, another independent. And it's a uh, guy's got their, their names are Brian Ruskin and Pete Nestor. Wonderful guys. Um, yeah. Well worth checking out. And they do a, a great job. Um, so they sort of do the same thing they do remotely. Um, I think one's in, I think Pete's in New Orleans or Louis, well, then that's an end of the States. And um, Brian, I think, is up more sort of Northeast New York area. And they're old friends from from college. So they do a, a week, well, it's not weekly, sorry, about a monthly album review podcast, but they have the best rating system in the world of any podcast I've ever listened right. to. They rate in warm, tasty burritos. And the, <laughs> and the burritos always have something. It's a, it's a really, it's a cool hook. And they're, they're, you know, you get those podcasts when you've got co-hosts. It, to me, it's always all about the relationship between the co-hosts. And if there's no chemistry there and if there's no sort of dynamic, it, it's harder to listen to. Those guys are they're just fantastic. Um, 
And another quick shout out to the Limehouse podcast. Um, so my friend Will, who's in Dis in Norfolk. So any of your listeners who live in, in sort of in Norfolk, uh, go check out Wildflower Records in Dis because the Limehouse podcast is a, a general podcast. And he's, he's had guests like, again, Paul Zolo's been on his podcast. Steve Ferroni's been on his podcast. Uh, Michael Palin, Christopher Guest, Michael Hesseltine. Like this guy's wow. had an insane guest list. He actually put me in touch with Paul Zolo. Um, and that's a great sort of general uh, chat about life and about different sort of areas of uh, communications and, and politics and those kind of things. So it's well worth checking out. Um, and then Beer of the Day, which is a California-based craft beer podcast. And my yep. season one guest, Dallas Helka, runs that one. Great podcast. Outside of those, those are probably the indie ones that I tend to listen to most. Um, I've started listening to yours. I listened to the um, the ELO, ELO episode. Um, really enjoyed that one, so I'm definitely going to dig into it because I think there's definitely the ones that I where I sort of I either know the subject or I like the subject because again, just hearing sort of other people talk about podcasts and things that they're doing is super useful, right? For all, all of us podcasters, go. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe I should. I'll try yeah. that. So I definitely got yours on my on my radar now. And then um, something rhymes with purple. Obviously, we talked about. Uh, and then mainly I listen to a lot of sort of comedy podcasts. So Off Menu with James A. Castor and Ed Gamble, fantastic. The Froth with Rod Gilbert and his wife, Sean Harris. Films to be buried with, Brett Goldstein. Um, and then No Such Thing as a Fish. So that's the QI yes. um, Elves podcast. Yeah. So those are the ones that I tend to listen yeah. to most often, I would say, when I'm out on runs or I'm sort of, you know, playing video games or anything. So, yeah. That's great. So where can people find you and get hold of you if Okay, so you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project or on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Um, and you can also find me on YouTube. If you want to get hold of me directly, uh, you can email me at kevin at kevbrown.ca. And I'm more than happy to chat to anybody. <laughs> I, li- I like talking. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, just just to go back to something that you mentioned earlier before we do the sign-off. So whereabouts mm-hmm. are you on the, the whole idea of the... Um, uh, the website development and trying to make it um, more expansive and go further out. Where, where are you at the moment? Is it just the podcast or have you started working on the, the website as well? Just the planning stage. So the, pod, the, the website is there. So it's www.tompettyproject.com, but that's really just a, an embedded ACAST um, link to all the episodes. Um, outside of that, yeah. I've sort of I've got the, the planning done for, for everything else that I want to do, and I am a I'm a web developer by trade as well, so so I'll be doing all that myself. Um, but in terms of what people can go see, nothing yet. But follow my like I said, if you follow me on social media, um, I'll definitely have updates on that in the next couple of months. So that's great because I, I think that's a great idea for everybody to sort of like what you were saying that idea of people just bringing in what they've got of their own past with Tom Petty. I think that's, I think that's a great idea of something for fans to sort of like go to and something to give to the fans and for them to be part of. I think that's, I think that's a fantastic idea. Yeah. And it's like that time capsule idea, right? There's a couple of other sites that do it. There's one that does it with old recordings that are not, um, that haven't been commercially released. So obviously nothing where you're infringing copyright, but where sort of tapes came off the board or bootlegs got pushed around that was sort of, somewhat authorized there's a great site for that and then there's a site that compiles all the magazine magazine interviews and those types of things i think i want to build out from that and do something similar not tread any of those tours but you know link to them and and so yeah just have that sort of place where people can come and just look at things you know look at posters look at concert tickets you know find concert photos or concert videos that people can post up so any of those types of things i think i'm open to uh looking into 
Yeah, it, it, it reminds me of. I mean, there's a, there's a channel that we have on Freeview, or, or that you can get um, not on Freeview, but as a download where you can watch things online that are old old films that people have been have just sort of like dug out, and they're yeah. not famous films or anything of any way, but they're fascinating. You know, like I mean, I watched one not too long ago on there, which was like an animation that somebody had made themselves, and I just thought. It's fascinating, you know, to to have this stuff and be able to look at stuff that's not out there for all. It's not a corporate, big corporate thing. It's like this little thing. And like I said, you know, these little things are just interesting. Yeah, and I think it's the, you know, as bad as the internet can be in some ways, it gives us the ability to connect. You know, we, we still have that. If we choose to use it for these reasons, you know, we, we still have that we can build community, we can build relationships with people we would never have been able to connect with before. And I think having that sort of opportunity and using that time, using your time and using your, your resources to do things like that, I think is, well, it's very gratifying person, on, from your own standpoint, but I think it's, yeah. it's valuable. You put in value back into culture and into the, into the world, I hope, right? That's might be a bit grandiose, but that's, that's the aim. Anyway, you can find uh, Pods Like Us on any podcasting platform. We're all over uh, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts, basically. And we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok, because I have this thing now with TikTok where if something jumps out at me while I'm doing my listening, I will uh, snag that and post it up on TikTok as an almost promotion of, oh, I listened to this, and this bit's interesting, such as, this will be interesting to you, Kev. So the other week, I was listening to Soda Jerker on song, and they had um, Roland and Kurt on from Tears for Fears. And Roland and Kurt both went into extreme detail about um, lyric blocking, which is basically the, the term that some people use for you, you, you've got a melody there for a song. You might not have every word. So you use f- words or sound to fill in that gap that you come back into later, which is called blocking. But it was just fascinating to hear them explaining how they use it in songwriting. And so I will sometimes highlight things like that on the on the TikTok account for people. Yeah, that's super cool. I, the first, my first, ex- getting off topic again. <laughs> my first ex- uh, sort of exposure to that concept was there's uh, Genesis. We can't dance. They're sort of their, you know, their yep. last album, more or less. They, they did a, a documentary, sort of, of the making of, and that's where all those songs came from. So they, they you know, they were all music first. They, they write all the music first, Genesis, and then t- Phil would just sing nonsense, just a melody. And that No Son of Mine is exactly where that came from. Is Because Mike Rutherford said, that sounds like you're singing No Son of Mine. And Phil said, I yeah. can do something with that. I'll take that one. And so they divvy up the songs and they've got Phil's just the melody line and they try to fit in, or they, or they ignore it, but it's, it's a starting point that you can use to drive things forward. So it's a super useful sort of songwriting uh, trick. It really is. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening and hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us.
There, we're good to go. Yep, it's ready to go. Right on. <laughs> yep, Zencaster it uh, it records local feed from each person that's doing it, so it'll record you on your computer, and then when we finish, uh, so long as you don't hang up as soon as the show I finish pressing record, yeah, then it will upload from your computer to mine. Hmm. Well, that's a good idea, yeah, because now with Zoom. You basically get the audio. You get it splits the audio streams, but you basically get the the feed sort of over the net, as it were, sort of thing, which isn't always yeah. great. Which is why I was offering to do, but that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've contacted Zoom and asked them why they've not tried doing it, but not got a response, <laughs> obviously, because a lot of these people don't don't have any contact, do they, with you? No, no, way too big a company. If I think. only. Yeah, yeah. I mean, considering how much money you pay for Zoom as well, I mean, you know. If you pay for it, then you'd you'd have thought they'd be more interested in making it better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm up to date with all the all the episodes about the uh, the songs. Well, that's awesome, man. I, th- I don't know if you've noticed. I've got up to date with them. Yeah, last night's ended up being a quite a, a quite a bit longer because I just got you know don't do me like that. I got into so much sort of. I ended up down a rabbit hole just sort of doing the research. And I thought, well, there's so much to talk about here. And then when you get your recording, it's, I don't know how long it's going to be because I don't, you know, I just write my script and then record it and see how long it is. And yeah, it was, I think it's the longest song episode so far at 16 minutes. So I was like, oof, all right. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm not up to date then because I didn't listen. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have a, see that one last night because I wasn't at work. Yeah. I do all my listening at work. Yeah. What do you do for a job? I am an uh, alarm response, so you know, basically a security guard in a van that drives around places. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. And responds to alarms. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. It is. You never know what to expect from night to night. <laughs> so, so what what do you do then, Kev? Other than music, or, or is music your life? No, I wish it was. No, I'm a IT guy, basically. I work with the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. So it's basically Canada's wildlife health surveillance network um, in Canada. So we sort of monitor things like avian influenza, chronic wasting disease. Of course, now we're doing um, uh, COVID, yep. which has sort of leaked into the, the animal kingdom. Um, and high path avian influenza is just really hit sort of the eastern seaboard of Canada and starting to spread west. So we're heavily involved in that because obviously the transmission between wild animals and, and domestic animals like poultry has massive implications to industry uh, and the economy. So we sort of manage the um, the science side of doing the testing for all those diseases and sort of keeping an eye on what's going on in the wildlife population and then reporting those types of um, information back out to government, non-government partners. So I'm the sort of the IT guy who I manage our database and some of the reporting and those kinds of things. So it's a very dry job, but I do I do enjoy it. It's fun. I think it's an important job personally. I'm someone that loves loves nature and yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I mean I, I did work in the sort of the private sector doing website stuff and all those kinds of things, but doing something a little bit more meaningful for the for the country is you get a bit of a kick out of that, right? It feels a bit more useful. So So how, how did you end up how did you end up in um, I'm go- I'm going to really butcher this name aren't I? How did you end up in Saskatch- Saskatchewan when from uh, from from up north England? Hey, you took a good stab at that. Yeah, you got you got it closer than a lot of people do. Yeah. Um so I joined it's a it's a fairly long story but I'll I'll do it in in quick steps. So, I joined the army in 89 um as a 16-year-old 
And then later I was stationed in Chelsea uh, in, in London, the heart of London. Um, and I met a, a guy there who was marrying uh, a Canadian girl. So I became very close friends with him and I came over to be his best man at the wedding. And the maid of honor at the wedding is now my wife. So we sort of met and started trying to date, but obviously it's a long distance thing. We did that for a couple of years and then decided, look, you know, either we get married or we break this off because you can't sustain a relationship over over the Atlantic Ocean. So I think we worked out afterwards. We'd been in the same city for, I think, maybe 30 or 45 days, and then we got married. So it was a huge, stupid risk that I would never let any of my kids take. But thankfully, it worked out because we're usually compatible, and we've been married for 25 years next year. So um, so that worked out. That's how, that's how I ended up in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Well, congratulations for, for the anniversary next year, 25. Yeah. Silver. Is that what it is? I have no idea. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's silver. Yeah. yeah. Gold right. is 50. So, yeah. Well, that gives me some time to buy something really expensive then, right? That's good. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah, you've got 26 years and then, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's at 60. Is it ruby or is it platinum at 60? I can't remember. No, rubies. Oh, I don't know. It's for, you know, and that's a that's a generational thing, eh? Because I bet you, like, you know, twenty year olds, sort of millennials, I bet they don't even know about the all the different sort of anniversaries and what you know what I mean. Like, I bet they just that's just not a thing that exists anymore. No, no. Well, even now at my age, I don't know what they all are. No, no. <laughs> Whereas I knew, I know that if my grandparents were still around, I'm, I'm sure that my grandma would just say, "Oh, it's this," and then she'll reel off every year from one up to sixty or something because they all yeah. know, they all knew it <laughs> for some reason. I don't know. Right, let's see how this goes. I um, I, I, I made a terrible picture of Tom. That's awful, isn't it? No, it's awesome. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Better than I can do. I cannot. I cannot. I mean, I do. These are like a, a funny thing. Like, there's another thing that I do as a side project. I do graphic design um, okay. for a local brewery, which is nice because I get you know paid in beer. Um, and for any of the clients who want that, but I can't freehand draw at all. I mean, not. It's, it's embarrassing how badly I, I am, how bad I am at that. So I salute you and I, I, I clap you because that's way better than I could ever manage. So <laughs> I try. I try it with all the shows that I do. I do like a little, lo- ver- my version of their logo in the top corner on my nose. Yeah, that's deadly. I love it. <laughs> try. Right, let's, let's do this. Start this officially then. Okay. Sounds good. Right. Do you mind if I nip to the toilet quickly and then we'll come back for the last couple of bits? Yeah, I'll go for my water. Thank you, mate. (laughs) Okay. And we're back in the room. We are. We're back in the room. I might put that in, actually, as an extra at the end. (laughs) So I'll press stop now and see how long that takes to...